0: thirds of americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout you could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours for days maybe even weeks are you ready to protect your family you could be with the patriot power solar generator 2000x these things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable Go to 4patriots.com slash Meat Eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash Meat Eater. Decked drawer systems. I've always loved decked as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco Caseline. These cases are as tough if not tougher than Pelican Case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com/slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. Meat Hunt, the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, guys, we're going to start right out with introductions.
1: Right off the bat, okay, uh, Michael Tewes, professor at Texas A&M University at Kingsville.
0: So that's how you say
1: that Tewes. Tewes, yeah. yeah, got um, it. Yeah, the, my computer keeps calling me two but yeah, uh, yeah, it's and um, I uh, serve as the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife uh, at the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute, and I've been there since 1981 as a professor doing cat biology and cat research. Uh, cats. Worldwide, we've done some work in Southeast Asia on some cats, uh, clouded leopards, marbled cats, uh, golden cats, cats you've probably never heard of. Yeah, and uh, and and leopard cats, some other cats. Okay, and your compatriot here. I'm
2: Neil Wilkins. Uh, I'm the CEO of the East Foundation, and we're an outfit that's. Uh, about 217,000 acres of private lands in Texas that has been set aside to serve as an area for research, education, and outreach, mainly for wildlife conservation.
0: And how close, because we, we first connected, I feel, around the, the fact, I can't remember how it lined up, or maybe it was coincidence that we were going down to the Eturia Ranch. I think so. Yeah, you were headed And it just to happened Eturia to be ranch. that um, you guys were located around
2: there. Yeah, we've got one of our ranches, the El Sal's ranches, uh, backs
0: up real close to the Eturio Ranch. Okay. So, yeah. We tried to, uh, I was hoping to arrange some kind of visit when we were down there, but it never worked out. Yeah. Now, uh, oh, and also Cal's here on a computer screen. He's going to have an entirely diminished role. (laughs) As. Yes. It's just, you know how it goes, Cal.
3: Yes.
2: So I've got a... Send some bad news to one of the peop- ladies that I work with. She wanted me to get Cal's autograph so i'm I'm gonna have to go back and tell her that she's not gonna get it. So. I think you just provide an address and he'll send
0: it okay um
3: we're also have we'll a use that f- e signature thing <laughs> will that work michael we Docusign. also have a re-
0: oh sorry we also have a common um Jim Hethelfinger. Yeah, What a loser that guy is.
1: I agree. Yeah, he was one of our—he our, <laughs> barely got out and graduated from our university about 25 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> no, he's, he's stellar. We're really proud of him. Uh,
0: we used to do a thing. We used to do live shows back when people did things with each other, and we would have these trivia contests. Like, we had these pre-shows. We'd do, like, these VIP pre-shows, and we'd have trivia. And one of our favorite trivia questions, because it always, like, really stumped people— is we would hit them with I can't remember if it was I can't remember the numbers now but it was like name five of the six or name the six wild cat species of the United States of America and a man guess which two in descending order were most likely to stump everybody
1: of oh, the cats
0: yeah Guess which two like no one ever got if they if they got one of those two it was are you talking
1: about north of Rio Grande or North America
0: in <clears throat> the present day U S so we would day. hit people with like name I can't remember how we would phrase it let me just think in my head real quick I, I'd say jaguar and
1: onslaught yes yeah well,
0: well, well yeah we would do North America yeah
1: yeah well, if you do North America that includes Mexico you got to add Jaguar yeah and Margay mar- yeah but
0: you have to have Jaguar even if it's the U S and Margay Mark.
1: Yeah, Margay, and, and there was only one record of a Margay in Texas, and that was in the the 1850s. Oh, see, we were screwing the... I feel like we gave people stuff that they didn't deserve. Did they include the house cat? No,
0: we would we would point out that. Okay. So let, let me just walk it through. To hell with the, how we asked the question. Let's walk <laughs> it through. Sure. Lynx. everybody knows that. Not everybody, but a lot of people know. There's, a, there's like one wild cat in Alaska, though I, I think it's... Rumored and maybe substantiated that a mountain lion or two has finagled its way into southeast Alaska. One was found all the way on the Mackenzie Delta with its ears frozen off or something like that. So they get around. But you have lynx, mountain lion, bobcat. Yes. Jaguar, jaguarundi, ocelot. But you're telling me there's another one I don't
1: even know about? I didn't even heard of well, this well, damn cat. What's Marge? it called? It's a it's a baby ocelot. It's like a half the size of an ocelot, but it looks almost the same. <clears throat> and we we did, I guess one of the first studies on them in Mexico, and published uh, an article about five years ago in the Sierra Tomalipus. It was a population of marques there that, that we studied. So it's like a little ten
0: pound wildcat.
1: Yeah, eight to ten pounds. Bigger eyes than ocelots, but everything else is is very similar.
0: Talk, uh, walk us through, like, what's up
1: with an ocelot? Okay. And, and
0: why is it no one knows about, No, why does no one know you have ocelots running <clears> around? Do
1: you think most people understand, know what an ocelot is? No. Because I'm I surprised do. that, I've been working at this 35 years, and I feel like I'm still failing getting the message out. No. What an ocelot is. <laughs> I didn't know.
0: <laughs> I remember when I was young reading uh, How to Trap books all the time. Okay. Old How to Trap books. And I remember I would always be like, what in the hell? Because you would see they'd have a section now and then on catching, and it would mention like an ocelot.
1: Well, I, we may have looked at the same trapping book. I had this one book in the early 1980s, and it had a chapter on trapping ocelots. And it's the only one I've ever seen. And it mentioned they're easy to trap. And sure enough, they turned out to be pretty easy to trap for me. You just the problem is you have to find out where they are. Once you find out where they are, they're easy to trap.
0: Yeah, so it's our people through like what what it is and where it lives.
1: yeah, it's uh where it used to live and where it lives. okay. The awesomes uh of the forty species of cats, the most beautiful it's It's just a fact it's uh that's an objective uh, reality objective reality. Um, <clears throat> it's about a 20 pound cat, about two feet tall. The, the, at least the cats in in Texas, United States, uh, the females are eighteen to twenty two pounds, and the males are twenty two to twenty five pounds. Um, and they're beautifully striped and and spots and rosettes. It's really an interesting tangle of 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 markings that provide the ultimate camouflage, I think, for for a cat. Yes, yeah, oh, like
0: I mean, it, it, is its co- is its coat different than the jaguars? Besides just being a smaller version.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's much more complex than a jaguar. Okay. A jaguar has the rosettes with a dot in the center of it. Ocelots have have spots, uh, rosettes, all kinds of, and then and some of the rosettes form chains to where it looks like chains going down the shoulder and down the back. It's <clears throat> and it's such a a very difficult animal to try to describe. You can, you you can't do it. And from one side of the ocelot to the other has a different spotting pattern, and each one's like a fingerprint. They're very unique. Uh, so it helps us when we use cameras to to census the population. We, we can identify individual ocelots that way. So uh, they. Well, uh, well, how would you describe the general color scheme? Yellow, yellowish background with a little bit of whitish underneath, and then um, like many of the cats, they have two very distinct facial stripes, um, and then um, and then these very distinct black, and then the tail is about an eighteen inch tail with black rings around it. And that and that's all very similar to margay as well, but uh, except smaller version for margay. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> they're an incredible cat. Their distribution goes all the way from northern Argentina to southern United States. They used to occur, and, and there have been a couple of males identified in Arizona, never a breeding population in Arizona, but they've always been a breeding population in Texas. And the range, uh, one of my hobbies is collecting uh, uh, reports of leopard cats, is what they were called in the 1800s. Oh, okay. So from 1830 to 1880, you have leopard cats identified in almost every almost every river in Texas up to East Texas. And and, and they so they they really like the dense brush cover that would be along a, a longer riparian area. So I can imagine distinct populations of ocelots. On every major river, Brazos, Trinity, Colorado River, into East Texas, and um, so so they did occur in Louisiana and Arkansas at least a, a record or two there. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Now, are
0: they? Do they show up in the oral traditions in Native American oral traditions?
1: For the Mayans and Aztecs, they do. Okay. Yeah, uh, the, you know the Mayans and Aztecs worship jaguars, uh, very important in their in their religion. But the Aztecs, uh, they, they kind of recognize the. Uh, the aztecs is a, a smaller godlike symbol or it was smaller in their in the symbolism back then the the jaguars if if you're ever eaten by a, a, a jaguar you you went into the portal to hell uh, so you didn't want to be eaten by a jaguar oh, i didn't know that yeah it's that's, it's really rich tradition all the way down to i think the incas even had had some of that uh, jaguar worshiping but the aztecs were the a, a minor. weird
0: deal where cause of cause of death That's not self-inflicted is rewarded with hell.
1: Yeah. I don't think anyone likes to get- uh, No, that doesn't pop up very often, man. Yeah. Those, uh, it it hurts to be uh, bitten by a cat.
4: Yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) When you say that they um, bumped into Arkansas, perhaps, or bumped into Louisiana, perhaps, um, those come from just very, like- small like single references or whatever
1: that's right they the type specimen for the subspecies albacens comes from louisiana oh it does yeah and and, and, it's, and sometimes i get a little mixed up it may have been arkansas but it, back when it was Louis, shortly after being louisiana purchased so they called it maybe louisiana but the type specimen is from there and then how many at once upon a time how many were running around it's anyone's guess? Uh, no, really, the, the records that you you uh, have from the 1800s is one instance, one anecdote: I shot a leopard cat. I found a leopard cat with a couple exceptions. There's um, one trapper uh, who, who reports uh, several leopard cats in his catch at the mouth of the San Bernard River. So wheres that sit? south of Houston, about about 30, 40 miles. And 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 uh, so so that's kind of uh, is really believable. To, to like believe. he was logging his season's catch, uh, at least that. Yeah, I don't know if a whole season, but it, it was very probably a very large population in that area at that time. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, and and the spelling. It was really funny how he, the anecdote there and the or the narrative was, was he misspelled everything you could misspell, but he got leopard cats and bears there, and then another one was. Uh, Oh, uh, the, the hunter that led the Roosevelt hunts. Uh, and he came out of Louisiana, went to Texas. And then um, uh, Lily, ben, ben Lily. Is I, he I the know. guy that ran the. Um,
0: is he the guy that was tangled up in the whole teddy bear thing?
1: No. Oh, that wasn't that. No, owner? no, oh, okay. no. Okay. Now, Ben Lily's a character. I mean, he would never sleep indoors, he always slept outdoors. And he was a tremendous cat dog person. He did went from bears Louisiana, spent 1906, collected a few ocelots south of of uh, Houston. and then went on and made became famous in in Arizona, leading a hunt with Teddy Roosevelt. But interestingly, a couple of those samples that he collected south of Houston and sent off to the Smithsonian, we we got DNA from the bones of of the skull from those cats. So oh. we analyzed it a hundred years later. It's kind of interesting to yeah. To, but Ben Lilly, if anyone ever, I mean, that's that's an interesting read just there. So
0: if if you do, if you can't get a good sense, of like how many ocelots were ever running around in what's now the U.S.
1: Well, we do now. We have a good idea for the U.S. What was running around? Oh no, no, not previously. Yeah. No, no, it, it was probably many hundreds, at least, maybe a few thousand.
0: But can't you guys, when you're doing genetic work, can't you guys find? Um, like, if you got an old bone from 100 years ago, isn't there some process by which you get the mitochondrial DNA from that, and you can tell the effective breeding population size by, like, how many how many contributing mothers are in a population?
1: Yes, we've done that. Uh, my student, Jan Janetska, uh, is now a professor at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, but he, he published four really good ocelot genetic papers, and one of them was looking at effective population size. Uh, and another one was just where he documented the, the genetic erosion that's been going on from 1985 to 95, and then 2005. And we've had a very steep decline in, in genetic variability in the ocelot populations, the two populations that occur in Texas. <clears throat> They've lost um, things called private alleles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where very few alleles are, are very specific to that population. We would find only one or two in the Texas populations and, and compare them with our research in Mexico where we'd find 30 private alleles. Um, so it's just uh, we've lost heterozy- genetic heterozygosity. And then the the effective population size is, is very few uh, down to... Well we've only really sub- sampled a subset of the population so so it but it was very few and then I had another student, Jennifer Corn look at the uh, inbreeding and we found four or five inbreeding events in both of the populations so they've got they've got problems. Can you walk through real quick? I imagine because you've been
0: in the cat business so long you probably know this story better than anybody or at least as well as anybody. What happened with um, different cats? But it has the, like the inbreeding. Wasn't the Florida Panther like severely inbred? And that led to taking lions out of Texas
1: and putting them in Florida? Yes. That, that's, that's the The nut of, of the case, yeah.
0: And is that I, I want to at some point get to like why we can't why can't just dump a bunch of them in Texas now from Mexico and have the problem taken care of?
1: Yeah, that's a good story to have in a second. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but my, one of my former students, David Schindle, is now the the Florida Panther lead for Fish and Wildlife Service, and and uh, um so so yeah they the, the Panthers I think at one time were estimated thirty five or fifty individuals. And then there was a a discussion about bringing Texas and ended up moving a, a, a eight or more lines from West Texas into to Florida to help with the genetic erosion and increase genetic yeah. variability. And uh, that, that has been very successful, my understanding, is, is they've really uh, – the d- demography of the population has, has really expanded. And I think it's been helpful by most assessments. Yeah, it was kind of a deal with the devil a little bit because – Yeah, there was one argument. One side said we want to keep the pure Florida panthers, the Corii, with subspecies. And then the other said we don't care. We just want Florida panthers to exist in Florida. And those were the two uh, basic arguments there.
0: Uh, I didn't realize that that you saw that ocelot populations were still collapsing or continued to collapse like from as recently as 1985 to present. But walk through what happened to – what happened to this cat to get it into trouble in the first place?
1: Well, I think the first settlers came and settled on the rivers where the assault populations were. And since we've already said ocelots are easy to trap, they are, and, and to kill, right off the bat, you had that conflict between humans and, and people. And so over, over the years, uh, uh, there was pretty extensive poisoning going on in the 1950s, 40s, 50s for predator control to help benefit Game species. Why were they pissed at ocelots? Or well, they... it was just universal. Everything strychnine, it killed just about everything. Because
0: ocelots, they probably kill chickens and stuff. but They're not going to take down cattle
1: or anything. That's the worst thing about an ocelot is it kills chickens. And so, if, if you're not a chicken aficionado, who cares? You know, and I'd rather have ocelots. But they're, they're very, they're very. Uh, um, a very peaceful cat. Uh, I mean, and that's probably one reason they're easy to catch. And a lot of people had them as pets, but they don't, they don't hurt livestock. They don't hurt game species. Uh, they're, they're, and I think their gentle demeanor, they're very popular pet in the 1960s. Um, I I know some of your audience is probably too young to remember who Don Meredith was, Yep. but he was, he was one of the, the first, uh, commentator on, 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 uh, Monday Night Football, and he was the the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys from nineteen sixty one to sixty eight, I believe. He had a pet ocelot. His name was Pepe, and uh, and so he 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 really enjoyed that cat. And he came home after losing to the Washington Redskins for a weekend, and he got a concussion during that game. And only to find out that the housekeeper had let the the cat out, and it got ran over. Oh, so it was kind of double double loss that weekend. For Don Meredith. But a lot of people had them as pets in the in the 50s and 60s and thought it was a, a glamorous thing to do. Uh, if you kept them indoors, though, you regretted it because they would spray urine all, on everything. And then they have a very distinctive smell in the urine. Uh, and you, you don't want to live there for too long after that happens.
4: Was that still legal in our country in the 60s, that you could just take an animal like that out of the wild and... Turn them into a pet?
1: Yes, in the sixties. Yeah, uh, they didn't become endangered internationally until 1973, and nationally until 1982. There was a, a, a overlook; they missed adding it to the list in seventy three. But yeah, uh, and people have had them pets even in the in the eighties and nineties, and and I you may still be able to do it if you have all the different permits that's required. It's, it's very more hmm. difficult to do it now.
0: Where do they sit on the Endangered Species Act list now? Are they listed as threatened or listed as endangered?
1: They're listed as endangered. Okay. Yeah, fewer than 100 left in the United States. What At what year did you
0: take notice of? In that little film you guys put together, it mentions how when you first got interested and people told you that you wouldn't be able to catch one because there weren't any to be caught.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um uh, a, a professor that Neil and I share in, in common was Dr. Jack Inglis. He, he was one of uh, my walleye professors, and he bet me a, a bottle of Jack Daniels that I'd never catch an ocelot. And um, and so luckily I did on uh, March 2nd, 1982, which was Ocelot Day. Happens to be Texas Independence Day, by the way. But uh, So I, I caught the ocelot on that day, and a year later, Jack Inglis bought me the bottle of Jack Daniels. Why, Why did it take them a whole year to do it? Well, we only met at a conference a year oh, later, okay. and we drove around Austin. They bought that bottle of Jack Daniels. And every time my students and I caught a new species of cat for research, we'd take a shot out of that bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we've had over-trail shots. We've studied over-trail different kinds of cats. And so we, and I hope to have a few more shots coming out of it. Walk through, uh,
0: walk through sort of, you know, like a career path of someone like your interest in career or whatever to where you got to be like, I'm going to try to catch an ocelot. I'm going to try to trap an ocelot, which supposedly aren't here anymore.
1: Yeah. If, if you want to do it as student, um, uh, you know, is that, is that what you mean? Kind of if,
0: like how did you get in the situation to even care?
1: I, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think serendipity and luck had to play a lot with it, but I think also hard work puts you in that position uh, to 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 be at least noticed by your, your the next level the professors that were willing to take a chance on me and uh and but I've been very lucky throughout my career I think very fortunate to 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 do what I'm able to do but I was in the right place the the my masters I did okay on on my masters project so they offered a phd which involved ocelots and then I I got with the old trappers the first few months and and, and the people that have trapped the ocelots for 40 years and kind of learned a lot of techniques from them and and then I hit the right place uh and uh and that's why it came down to is just finding the right place did you grow up hunting and trapping uh yeah, I did I, I hunted um and yeah I can think of a little trapping possums and things when I was younger and, and did some limited hunting when I was a kid I did uh, some bird hunting dove hunting and duck and but I, I've gotten where I'm, I'm so obsessed now with cats. I don't do any. I can't fish, I can't hunt, I can't do anything except read or study about cats. And that's a, I probably need some psychoanalysis for that. But, but, uh, but I, so that was, yeah, I, I was in the outdoors. I was a bird watcher. I don't tell, I consider myself a mammologist. And I learned early on that people, well, that ornithologists didn't have as much fun as mammologists had. And uh, so I, I ended up becoming a mammologist instead of an ornithologist, at least in my opinion. I, they, they may argue that with, with you.
0: Back in the—so you caught your first one in 82. Mm-hmm. And what was, the, what was the reason that you needed to go out and catch an ocelot?
1: We got a contract from the Fish and Wildlife Service to to study ocelots since they were putting him on the endangered species list that year. They wanted to have a little bit of information. And found to find out even if they existed in the state, I had several— uh, gray hairs and professors tell me they they no longer occurred in Texas, that they've been extirpated. But people weren't just hitting them with cars and stuff? No. not uh, Well, if they were,
0: they weren't being reported back then. Because that's the weird thing about with Florida Panthers, right? It'd be like, oh, there's only 30 left. But then every year, three of them get hit by cars.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's why it's same, so hard to picture that you could hide. It's a parallel with ocelots there. But the the refuge Laguna Escosa refuge, where I began some of that work, the the refuge staff didn't know they had them there. They knew they had them uh, in the mid '60s when they mm. did some predator trapping. They found some, but they'd gone ten years and didn't even realize they had them. And they probably have always had about seven to fourteen slots, even now. Are they just super secretive? They're secretive, the nocturnal, uh, uh, and they 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 like this. They and they enjoy really dense brush brush that no one wants to walk into. So those three factors alone make some, a lot of ranchers will, not a a few ranchers have ocelots, but they didn't know it because of those three factors.
0: I would just think that with, I mean, I guess it's testament to how few there maybe were. I would think that with guys out predator calling and coyote and bobcat trappers, that unless if there was one left, someone would have it.
1: Well, again, you're right. Um, I consider roads a very effective sampling technique. Yeah, you know, if if a population is somewhere, they they're going to get ran nowhere. That's why Harry and the Hendersons
0: would happen for real if there were Bigfoot.
1: Now, that's I've used that same. Example. Like if and they I, were it, there, someone would, would run over them. And, and then, it wouldn't be like a
0: secrety thing.
1: No. And then There would I just start be to... a big
0: dead one in the road.
1: <laughs> and then when it, when I expressed my doubt about that, I start getting hate mail from Michigan, Wisconsin. So I don't talk about Bigfoot anymore. You had to quit. No. Yeah. You don't want to talk about Bigfoot. They, there's some serious people out there still convinced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> would that be in your, like as a mammologist, that'd be right in your wheelhouse, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh I, I'm, I'm going a different direction. Okay.
0: You don't even want to be implicated in this conversation. I'm kind of figuring out how to get out of it, actually.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, anyways, I was saying, with all these ways in which they could that ocelots, um, I, yeah. I, I guess the point of what I'm saying is this: I always struggle with um, Lazarus species. You know, this trying. I don't know if you guys use the term Lazarus species, like species that rise from the dead, right? So, like black-footed ferret. Um, it's gone. and it's like, holy shit, it's not gone. A guy's dog just dragged one They're in, in the Buttey, Wyoming. Yeah, well, you know? right. and then uh, the Tasmanian devil. What's that? What's that animal called, Cal? I'm trying to engage with Cal. I'm throwing him. am throwing him an easy one.
3: What is the animal that uh, is most similar to a Tasmanian devil? No,
0: they they have a better name than Tasmanian devil.
3: Like a, the tiger? The ti- Tasmanian, Tasmanian tiger. tiger. That's what I'm yeah. trying to
0: say. Yeah. Tasmanian tiger. Theracine yeah. or something like that, right? Right, yeah.
3: That thing, yeah, that is, that's like the saddest picture of all, is like the this cool-looking striped dog-cat combo that is in a jail, and it's like, <laughs> the last one.
0: But people have been, every year, feeling like they saw one.
1: Yes. You know? Well, that. That's the equivalent of jaguarundis in, in Texas, in the United States, throughout the South. I, I to this day, I have biologists, and, I, and I, we were just talking about it. I've had five or six what I consider famous biologists argue with me about jaguarundis occurring throughout South, the South, Florida, Texas. In my opinion, jaguarundis don't exist; haven't existed in Texas since 19, the last road killed in 1986. But do you have a look? Oh, in 86, someone ran over at Jaggerundi in it, Texas? It, well, that was, yeah, April of 1986. Really? Two, two miles east of Brownsville. Right oh, over- so
0: very close to not being in Texas.
1: Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, they were never, were never located north of the Rio Grande Valley anyway, although people think they occur throughout the South. Hmm.
0: So there you are. It's the early 80s. Some people say they're maybe gone. I would have been, they're definitely gone. If someone thinks they're maybe gone, I'd say they're gone. Oh, you know what? Here's another one everybody's still looking for. What? The ivory-billed woodpecker.
1: Yeah. Well, I saw one when I was a back when I was a bird watcher, by the way. What East. year? It would be uh, early 70s. Oh. Yeah. I, I thought I saw one anyway. But in, I'm sure it was a pileated. woodpecker. But no one's
0: laid eyes on one since, I don't know. But every year people go looking for them. Yeah. Yeah. And they see- what we, what we call, where I'm from, pileated woodpeckers.
1: Yeah, pileated woodpeckers. And, and it's the same phenomenon, I think. The, the Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Munster. Here's another thing. To have a viable population of any species, you need 50 or more individuals to live for 100 years.
0: Huh. Okay, but who gets to make that? Who gets to say that that's the truth?
1: That, that came out, Michael Soule, 1980. It was like the beginning of, of MVPs, Minimum Viable Populations of Discussions, and it has since became much more complicated since then. But that so, was he's kind like, of the, so he's like, hear ye, hear ye. Yeah. If you have
0: 50 of something.
1: Well, and that's a computer modeling will show that for okay. a lot of species. And and now it's called Population Viability analyses. Okay. We've done two different... PhD projects on that, you put in all these life parameters and you can estimate how long a population of a certain size will persist over time.
0: I guess I'm incredulous of it because I could see if you said for large mammals, for instance, it would take a population of X, right? right. For large marine mammals, it would require, And it, but if we're talking about a
1: plant you know what I'm saying? It's Generation hardy- time is an important part of a Mouse yeah. versus an elephant, yeah, yeah. and it's part of this modeling. It's there are a lot of variables that go into this modeling, but it, there's there's been much research done on that. But the, the the gist of it is is if you have a very small population, it's it's very unlikely to, to survive, survive a long period of time. So so I kind of call that viable population of a Bigfoot or likeness monster. You probably need at least fifty of them. If you're, you're going to have fifty likeness monsters, you probably need several locks. To have a population. I went to that
0: lock one time and looked out upon it. Didn't see anything. Um, I wish you were more, uh, I wish you liked to talk about Bigfoot because I could, here's the thing, in talking to you, I could get better at arguing with Bigfoot people. Yeah, yeah, no, I... I I'll, I'll just call you sometime I, I and you sent could those give letters. A, you could give me a crash course on on what one might say in an argument with Bigfoot people to
1: make you seem more right. I'll forward you to those threatening <laughs> letters that I got.
3: So, the viable uh, population question, though, is like, so right now, you know, like when you're looking at wolf reintroduction, like the lowest folks are willing to go is a hundred animals. That's like the bare minimum. And there's a lot of folks that... Are it'd be like pulling teeth to get them to go below 250 animals, and that's a pretty fast reproducing animal. You know, I was just re- doing a lot of research on uh, Australian uh, lyrebirds, which are pretty darn cool. That's a songbird, um, big songbird that doesn't even get around to thinking about reproduction. On the male or female side till they're between five and seven years old. And it's like, think at all the stuff you got to survive to get to five or seven years old when you're a, a ground dwelling songbird.
0: In a country with and, six million feral cats or whatever. Feral is. cats,
3: <laughs> yeah. Mongooses, feral cats, yeah. Uh, kids with slingshots, BB guns. Um, and so, like, how does that? I understand, like, the, the model was set up to be manipulated, but it is something that seems like it, it is kind of an arbitrary number well, of
1: 50. that's another variable that goes into the model is, is age to first reproduction. And, and what it turned out for ocelots and, and, and many of the cats is how many, how long does a, a breeding female um, produce young and, and how many young do they produce? And ocelots typically only have one to two young. Compared to bobcats, are two to four, and and then so and ocelots reproduce well into the years. The uh, uh, Bill Swanson, who is an expert on ocelot reproduction, Cincinnati Zoo, will have reproductively active males well beyond ten years, and same thing for for females. They they last uh, reproductives. So there, are all these variables kind of go under these models, um, and I'm by no means an expert on them. That's why why we have other people do them, but and it's really, and you really have to take it with a lot of uh, grains of salt. It just kind of really gives you an ideal of, of say, I'd rather put in 250 wolves than 100 wolves because of these factors. And for us, it helped us identify what what kind of information do we need most, and what it turned out to be was how many young does a female produce for how many years. And so it, it really kind of guides you into what kind of information to collect to get more find. Refined estimates and 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 things to worry about and not worry about.
0: I want to keep moving with the chronology of of the like the story of the ocelot. But if at some point there's a way to weave this in, I'd like to understand this. We will often say that um, if a female of whatever species, let's say we're talking about ocelots, like if she can successfully produce two. If she can have two offspring that make it to breeding age, she was successful. And you would hold the population. Like the population remains static. Is that like an acceptable thing to say to somebody?
1: Well, what is it? The humans? You have to have at least 2.3 humans to maintain. Oh, is that what, okay. I, I, well, I learned that 20 years ago. Maybe. I'm, thing, I'm about, by now. But,
0: but I think about that with salmon and stuff, right? Is They're dropping, up, so. I don't know, thousands of eggs. And it'd be like if two of those eggs makes it, the fish was successful.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Two of the eggs out of, or with sturgeon, they're putting in, producing in a lifetime millions of eggs. If yeah. two of those make it, that's a successful fish.
1: Yeah. And, and there are you know, there, their strategies just produce eggs and there's no parental care. And then you have the reverse where elephants may put in years for, for, Making sure the young survive to, to breeding age, so and you have everything in between. But yeah, I two point three humans, I guess, to replace, and, and uh, that, that seems logical, I guess. Can you real quick explain
0: those strategies where you have? There's like they have letters applied to them, right? Like the rabbit strategy or whatever.
1: Oh, K K selected species and R selected species. Yeah, is that what? You, yeah, that's right. We're I mean, like
0: you have a ton of them and don't pay any attention to them.
1: Yeah, that's our select our selected species where and help me Neil if, if I'm wrong. K selected species is where they invest a lot of energy and, and time in raising the young and making sure they they reach breeding age.
0: Yeah, like a black bear, right? She's gonna yeah. spend. She's gonna spend two years tutoring her offspring, caring for and tutoring her offspring.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And a rabbit's like, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> you.
1: Know? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to live. <laughs> you get get out of here. Yeah. Just... I know a lot of prey like that. You know the the rodents and everything else. Um, what was it that you actually wanted the ocelot for
0: when you went out to catch one? When you said I'm going to study ocelots, people were like, eh, hey, it's probably not need to study or whatever." But like, what what really were you wanting one for? We,
1: we had everything you could list that at the time. We we wanted to learn about its its air, home range size, uh, how many there were. Um, what kind of social organization do they have? What are their activity? Just the basic natural history. Like enough to fill out an Audubon guidebook. Uh, yeah, and we probably did. <laughs> we probably did at the time. We, we That was the very first ocelot study, and then another one started in Venezuela a few months later, but nothing was known at that time about ocelots. It was the first ocelot study? Yeah, yeah. When you learned from the,
0: when you, when you had to go ask around about how to go get one, Uh, lay out like what kind of sets you were making and how you were catching them, because it's kind of weird. It's like a thing I haven't seen a strategy that I don't know why it's not more widely used. Well,
1: we've used live birds. Yeah, we use box. Well. And they stay alive, by the way. I just want to make that point. We, we use box traps. Yeah, I mean, okay, sure. Tomahawk box traps. But imagine the night, the then, na- <laughs> imagine we- the night that pigeon spends
0: separated by some quarter-inch mesh from an ocelot. <laughs> we started off
1: with chickens for the first 20 or 30 years, and it's amazing. It, it's not what you would think. I would walk up. In the morning, to the check traps, and the ocelot would be sound asleep, and the chicken was trying to pick fleas off the ears of the ocelot. Are you than, Multiple times, uh, that happened several times. They they attained re- a relationship during the night, so it doesn't the, like
0: destroy the chicken psyche.
1: Not well. It's hard to tell the chicken psyche, but I couldn't. I don't. I didn't detect that. No, yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm not condemning.
0: It. I mean, it's like plus. You have every justification when you're trying to like find out what's going on with something that's going to be like wiped off the face of the earth if it gives a chicken a yeah a, a bit, little bit of a heart yeah, a little
1: heartburn for a night. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ted was my favorite rooster, and uh, and and he did he he lost one eye in a battle with a raccoon and things, but this was in 1982 83, but he he persisted and and he caught several ocelots, big white rooster. I would place the roosters a certain distance apart so in the early morning they'd be crowing to each other. Oh. And then it's like a natural predator call. Those, I'm sure, it'd help ocelots. That's a great animals. idea. Yeah.
5: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at Errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators. Furniture for your living room or bedroom. Even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands, like HP, Samsung, and Ashley, and you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65 inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55 inch or upgrade to an 86 inch. You can do that too, return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit errands.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigational app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use a fully functional GPS when you're out of service. We all know that's usually where the best part starts. It's intuitive to use and lets you find open trails anywhere you want to explore with just a tap on the map. Access detailed trail information like difficulty rating, duration, clearance level, open and close date, trail photos, and more. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. You just download it ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Describe the trap now. The the tra- and like kind of like where you go to set it and how you figured out where to go. But, set uh, it. can
4: we? Fi- I want to know why we don't use chickens anymore. And uh, it's
1: pigeons now. Well, they crap too much and eat too much food. It's a no. basic reason. No. There's, there's and pigeons. It's cheaper. Or they do less of both. They less defecation problem, less and less uh, food, and uh, and they're very happy. And the, the birds we take very good. I mean the. You wouldn't believe the care we take care of the, the pigeons in the aviary; and they're treated treated very well, and uh, so but it's very effective. And so I so I use white pigeons to, to try to increase the light during the the night, and and we'll catch as many bobcats and ocelots. Uh, uh, typically, hundred trap nights, hundred fifty trap nights to catch one ocelot or one bobcat. That's ten traps out for fifteen nights to get a hundred fifty trap nights. Or one trap for one night is one trap night. Yeah, I'm tracking So you. they're pretty easy. But jaguarundis in Mexico, there's over a 1,000 trap nights to catch one jaguarundi. They're very, very difficult to catch. And that's why no one's published on them, I guess, so far.
0: All right. Explain the set, like the set for an ocelot. I, and I want to get back into the bait thing, too.
1: Okay. Well, we, first, you find out where there's a local roadkill, if you can. So there's probably a population nearby. Then you look for the densest brush near that roadkill. And Just if, one roadkill, pretty much. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're not all, but it, it probably eighty percent of them will reflect where population is. Yeah, it's a really pretty effective. And well, but term-
4: you you can't be telling me that every time you drive down the southern Texas highway and you see a roadkill, that there's a. Uh, Population of ocelots nearby. Well,
1: there have been very few locations of roadkills. they have only been near the two populations oh, with road the exception kill
4: of an ocelot. Yeah, sorry, sorry. sorry. Yeah, well, no, yeah. I was. Oh, I got it. you. Thought he meant any old roadkill. Yeah, kill. I'm thinking. Oh, there's a dead <laughs> nil guy. Let's set up a ocelot trap. <laughs> oh, no, 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 so you find a, a, the recent ocelot yes. roadkill dead, and then go from there.
0: Yeah, but there that were okay. Sense. But in eighty two. There weren't any dead oslots on the road.
1: There, there weren't, and I understand now. Um, the refuge only had seven to fourteen, and and no one had reported a recent oscillate roadkill there. The other larger population, eighty percent of the oslots occur on on five to seven ranches, large ranches, and you were probably on one of them, the Hacienda Eteria Ranch. Yep. Just recently, we believe there's probably some, some nearby there, uh, but these are large ranches away from the two roads that are there. There are only two highways. And so the, so the big populations away from roads that that explains part of it. So when you went out to make the
0: to catch one, you just went to the last place like like how you know what I mean how did you decide like well here's a place to try
1: Well I had a, was a it was the couple, last place known come, to have seen one or something. A couple of old trappers told me where they trapped them in the past. Oh okay and uh, and sure enough they it's really the same place they've been trapping them since 1940s and 50s and then they're still there. Uh, in, in those few places. Okay, and talk about the set now. Uh, the box trap, uh, so we find the densest brush and in the, in the largest patch of that densest brush that we can. Thorn shrub is their habitat. There'll be 35 different species of thorny shrub species there. It's an amazingly beautifully complex shrub community. Any place we can find a trail in that that we can get to easily or where a trail intersects another trail, you have it increases your odds uh so so we'd look for that and and um so history of cats good habitat and then looking for trail sites a place to trout and then uh and then pretty good chance you'll catch a cat if there's one there in a short period of time
0: uh you know we didn't talk about that i meant to ask you about what um what were the hell are people doing with them when they were trapping uh, on like the, one, like in the whatever in the forties, fifties, sixties, when they were getting knocked. You oh know, yeah, yeah. They, were they were they were they selling them as in the fur
1: markets? Yeah, yeah. They were. I, I, there's a, a a record I just sent Neil uh, from the 1940s of these two ocelots that were trapped in in uh, Star County, which is right adjacent to Rio Grande, and he's he he sold them for two dollars and fifty cents per pelt. So they would sell them in in the old days, and like a lot of the pelts, they they sell. Them.
0: So you could go down and get like yourself like an ocelot jacket or something back then.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you go back for enough in time, there there was a it was a very popular trading, uh, 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 thing on the frontier. People didn't have cash; they didn't couldn't spend money. So if you wanted to to get some milk or some eggs, you you trade something. And often a pelt, an ocelot pelt, was very valuable in trading. And the Comanches would use them for saddles. Uh, They would just throw an ocelot pelt on the horse and then ride on that. It's kind of a prestigious style. Riding style. Yeah, right. And then the quivers for the arrows would be ocelot quivers. Uh, Ocelot pelts would be... It was really interesting how it was important in the frontier.
0: Hmm. Just because they were so cool looking, probably. Exactly. Yeah. So when you caught the first one, what'd you catch down? a, A chicken or a pigeon?
1: The very first one of all the cats we've caught, two hundred fifty, we technically caught it on a padded leg hold trap—a two and a half. Oh, you did. Leg. That yeah. was
0: pre-live trap. B- b- yes. Before you were using live traps.
1: Yeah, and we in our federal permit, we we had in there the fact that we could use le- leg hold traps, box traps, or even hounds. Okay. And uh, and um, John, my, my buddy who's who's out of Maine, helped me catch that first ocelot on the on the Guadalupe Ranch, and and he he was a uh, um, working on, uh, so he had the padded leg holes and so so that all the other cats since then since nine, that very first cat have been with box traps. So five days later, we caught another. I, I caught another ocelot with a box trap. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's and and the chicken thing has worked around the world. Again, we've. We've trapped 12 different species of cats all on chickens. So it's kind of amazing how that well, you got a universal. box trap,
0: and in the back of the – where you put the bait, there's a separate little cage. Exactly. And the bird hangs out in there. And they're
1: protected, and, and they're food and water, all they want to eat. But cats like chickens.
0: And he comes in there and triggers a thing and uh, kicks the treedle or whatever, and the door shuts. Exactly,
1: yeah. Yeah, uh, we used to put lures sometimes, or we'd hang some flagging. you hang a feather so it blows in the wind or yep. some fur. We we found we don't even need to use lure if you just have the bird there that works as good as anything.
4: No
0: find that thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, With no lure. Well, the, yeah, I like that oh, crowing yeah. trick putting them out so they crow back and forth. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it made me feel good. It made, made me think that I actually had it figured out and stuff. But uh, I don't know. I think it helped a little. House, oh, go ahead. John. I was going to say
4: your PhD st- PhD student in that video though was doing a little like covering the the floor of that trap. So they are sensitive a little bit to the to the metal
1: well i I try to teach that to make sure To, to I, I i teach the perfect set mm. and the setting dirt along the metal and the treadle and and encase it in brush, so there's only one entrance f- from the front and I give them the perfect scenario but but I've put traps where they're even sitting almost in the air and sometimes and so I start off with the ideal trap, but you can at least for all slots you can catch them in other ways not a perfect trap set. Did it make the news when you caught one, or was there like was there media
0: around the fact that um, you were started catching them
1: no I, I, I always for the first two years, I thought that it was I, I I would catch them and work them up all by myself and and I always thought this was a very I, I felt like it should have more attention than it was getting. I was just there by myself and and doing the cat research and and uh, a couple of years later th- there started to be some media things yeah, well after a while, there was a ton of media things. Yeah, there have been a variety of – there have been a lot of things over, over the years.
0: And then when you came into it, I would have thought that at that point they get ESA protection in what, 82? 82, 82 for the U.S., yeah. Why did that not lead to – why was that in, insufficient to, like, why were the numbers still going down? Like in 85, they're still going down. Well,
1: you know, the, the numbers were probably very similar, but the genetic erosion – the same population we were monitoring the decline of heterozygosity or the, or the genetic variation. So that's why I was going down the numbers were probably about the same. I think for the last since we started 38 years ago the numbers have always been about the same but they they increase in wet years and you have high prey but when the droughts hit you get a two three year drought it it, it affects the this ocelot survival. We've documented that through our research that um, you get a, a severe drought six months into it. The, the vegetation is really pretty much gone. The rodents and rabbits that decline from that vegetation, and then you see failure of oslot reproduction about uh, about 12, 12, 18 months later, and that can only go for so long when you have so few cats, and and the oslots disperse. A lot of the the sub the the subordinate or subdominant individuals will disperse. And we found that the home ranges of the residents will expand. So and they're the residents will survive because they've got it figured out. They know what the home range is, they know where to to hide, where to find food. Every night they they really intensively explore their home range and they have an understanding of of real-time understanding of where the prey is, where the dangers are, where the coyotes risks are and things. And so they know when the prey starts to decline. The the residents probably push off the the dispersers, and the dispersers are the ones that die. They have much lower survival.
0: They die from road kills. Yeah,
1: get yeah. hit by cars. Yep, yeah, that's the number one form of mortality now is road kills. What else? You were mentioning coyotes. Coyotes will kill them. We've never documented that. I'm I'm sure uh, it wouldn't be. It would happen uh, for kittens at mm-hmm. least. But the fact that they use really dense brush, most of the time coyotes won't go into that brush. But if a, a pack of coyotes uh, found one in the open, it, it probably would be a, a problem. But there's enough other things that will kill them. We've had, had them die from rattlesnake bites, uh, ingesting a, a, a grasper into the lungs, Oh yeah. mange.
0: Do you lose them, too, just from people being like, what the hell is that, and then shoot it? Um, which seems to be a real thing.
1: Well, there it, it, it happened only once that I can think of in the late 1990s. So. You did it, Neil? No, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't identifying myself. I was just saying it happened once. Oh, that was
0: a, that wasn't not me. That was <laughs> that, a one time exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, are you, are you that's, how he, that's how he got interested in the subject.
1: <laughs> the story I heard was was that it was a hunter out of Houston shot one with a, a bow and arrow. Yeah, because he, uh, he, he thought he's... it was a bobcat. Oh, okay. And, and about long. one out of ten bobcats have spots just like an ocelot. so so it's really hard to distinguish. Well, that. but you got the whole tail problem. Yeah, you know, and a bobcat has sometimes surprisingly long tails, six inches, you know. Mm-hmm. So so someone who's not out there hunting all the time can yeah, fall into that. Yeah, uh,
2: that happens all the time, even with people that know what they're looking at. And I was a young biologist. And I was it was about nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five, and I was working on a piece of ground and. Called Mike Tuas out in 1985 and told him that he, that, that a buddy of mine and myself had seen an ocelot. And it was close by in Jim Wells County. And sure enough, an ocelot population hadn't been found there since. So it, was we, yeah, it was Bobcat. Yeah, it was Bobcat. We got didn't know you. what
0: we were talking about. Uh, what if someone were to say, if the population just doesn't seem to have changed since 1982— that maybe in fact they're not endangered maybe there just aren't that many of them never were and aren't well we're just like how about- do you handle like how do how do you handle that question
1: yeah oh well, it's a good question it's uh there are definitely many more in the range of mexico central and south america there are thousands there where so it's we're really talking about the u.s population which is fewer than a hundred and um and uh, so it it and and I'll, probably the hardest question to answer is why should we care? Why should we spend a lot of money? For
0: uh, I, I don't struggle with that one,
1: but go on. Okay, so some people do, and yeah. and, and, and and I just um, uh, for me it's just that the people that are involved with ocelot conservation have already gone past that question, regardless of what kind of argument you want to use. They're determined they want to keep them for whatever reason. And, uh, and there are a variety of reasons uh,
0: well like- I, I, I want you to get into that I mean, sell me on wanting to keep them I mean I'm on board because I don't like I don't like us playing God and deciding that we're gonna eliminate species from the planet but uh, sell me on that idea but but what about I mean like, but also like talk about the one I'm talking about where how, if, if since the moment the first time someone ever studied them they found like okay it looks basically like this and then that's that remains static. For 30, 40 years, um, how do you demonstrate that there's a problem? Because there's no baseline, there's no real baseline idea, yeah. right? Like if you were going in in 82 to do like baseline data gathering and not like what are things supposed to look like, but what do they look like? And it looked like that and it still looks like that. How do you convince people that we're facing a problem?
1: Well, I, I think that just the fact, when that one, what we call the refuge population, only has seven to fourteen individuals, if you're lucky, you have half of that as females seven, and there's a thing called demographic stochasticity. Sooner or later, you're going to have you're going to have fourteen males and no females, and just by chance. Over time, that's what happened with the seaside dusky sparrow. Came down to six individuals. They all turned out to be males and that was the extinction of their you species. Kidding. There's some
2: there's some real practical practical reasons why we should think that they were more widely spread. Right now, if you were to look on the coast and the center of the population for ocelots, we had Hurricane Hannah come through. Okay. What was it maybe five, six weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer. Hurricane Hannah, it was a category one hurricane. The eye of that hurricane came right over top dead center, the Center of the universe for ocelots in Texas. If, in fact, that would have been, say, a Category Four hurricane like Hurricane Laura that hit the southwest coast of Louisiana, we probably would have lost that population of ocelots. So, if you've got, yeah, I got what you're saying. you've got them geographically confined in an area right there, and they all exist, you know, eighty percent of them got to be below twenty foot in elevation, and you get a storm surge, you get the you know, you get everything that comes along with a major hurricane. There's no way that they will last and will last for very much longer just with that one particular source of, you know, potential catastrophe to them.
0: Yeah, no, I got you. That That's an interesting point. And also, that idea that if you have like carrying capacity for such a small number, I never thought about the fact that you could wind up in a situation where they're all the same gender.
1: Yeah, that's the demographic stochasticity. You got no. the environmental yeah. stochasticity. saying You get a five-year or ten-year drought that might do it. And Every hundred years, we get we get a five or ten-year drought.
2: And we've got habitat elsewhere, right? not not right next to it, but habitat elsewhere that's perfectly good ocelot
0: habitat, not occupied. What what is what is not what is like not worked? Why has ESA protection not been? I guess if you look at ESA protection as being keep it from going extinct. We're here to keep it from going extinct. Um, that, I mean, that's not what it is. But if you look at that being success, you could argue like, okay, it was successful because they're not extinct. But if you look at ESA protection as being a vehicle that would lead to recovery, and it's not a one-way road, and the expectation would be, you know, I think it only happens 2% of the time. Um, I'm not saying that's the fault of the ESA, but it has a very low success rate. In terms of something going on the ESA list – uh, and getting off is two percent of things I think a variety of things happens it, it goes on and then they realize that it shouldn't have gone on because they find other populations it goes on and it's already gone um or it goes on and becomes gone yeah so not many things make it off but what like what is preventing since 1982 to now what has made it that now we're not like the same way we are about bald eagles where you well, almost get sick of looking at bald eagles.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and in Texas, it's 97% private land. It, probably unlike any other state, um, uh, Texas retained its private lands. So, so any management, conservation, wildlife is dependent on private landowners. And um, and, and Neil can probably address this as, as good as anyone. Uh, the, this incentives that are built into the Endangered Species Act and the fear that many landowners have that they'll lose their ability to to manage the, the lands they wanted in the way that they want to, uh, gives them no incentive to even identify that they have an endangered species on the property. In their view, for many of them, it's a disincentive. Neil, you, you think?
2: Yeah, so I mean if you look at ocelots, for example, 100 ocelots, probably greater than 70% of those ocelots are on private lands in okay. Texas. And these are large ranches. Um, there's against the tide Uh, desire by those private landowners to somehow conserve ocelots for reasons of their own. Some of those are stewardship reasons that it would be a shame given that treasure that exists on those lands to let that species go extinct. Now, if you look over at the Endangered Species Act, and let's say it's a ream of paper, you know, they just print the whole act out and everything that has to do with it, about a ream of paper, about two sheets of those papers say something about private lands. And basically it says, thou shalt not kill an endangered species intentionally. Absolute, except for some cases and some nuanced exceptions with wolves and other things. And, and thou shalt not take an endangered species incidental to any other land use practice. That's it. Want on, say that last part again. Thou shalt not take an endangered species as an, as it, being incidental to an otherwise legal land use practice. So, Give me an example of that. An example of that. And the example of an ocelot is if you've got a fence line that runs through ocelot habitat and you were to disturb the habitat by clearing out that fence line, that might be considered by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to be an action that alters the behavior or the breeding probabilities of ocelots and therefore, it's a prohibited act under
0: the act. I follow act. you. I thought it meant that it would lead to like the direct death of. Not that it could lead to. This. That's that's what it originally was meant for in the act. Itself. But it's it's interpreted now as deteriorating sure. habitat
1: type or whatever, or sure. affecting the behavior. Take, take and just affecting the behavior. Sure. Yeah. And of
2: course that you know we came up with that in what 1972, right? And so we're driving a 1972 Ford Galaxy 500 policy trying to work with 2020 uh conditions trying to work with things like groups of landowners that are trying to work with the US Fish and Wildlife Service to figure out how to recover an endangered species and the Fish and Wildlife Service sometimes through no fault of their own can't figure out how to get out of the way and and to let it happen okay and you know, it's been called at least once vigilante conservation. You know, when that was first laid out there that way, I thought, well, that's kind of a pejorative term. But then when you really think about it, uh, vigilante is a group of citizens that have taken up a cause because the officials that are supposed to be doing it have abandoned the cause. And so... What
0: would be an example of vigilante conservationism?
2: uh, Vigilante conservation would be a a group of a group of landowners for example in in this particular situation we have landowners that know they have ocelots that would like to do three or four things one is to survey for those ocelots to know where they are where mm-hmm. they are and how many of them there are well if you do that then there's some confidentiality standards that those landowners would like they'd like for that information not to be leaked to the US Fish and Wildlife Service simply because the Fish and Wildlife Service would then have to make that available to a lot of these organizations that would file lawsuits and force the Fish and Wildlife Service to do the two things that landowners like don't like to hear and that's enforce and have
0: the authority over. And so if they don't okay if you want like a, a rancher wants to know or a landowner wants to know do I have them i think they' they're like maybe they're like, I think they're totally cool. I wish I had more yeah. I'd like to know if I have one, but I don't want the feds to know who are they trusting to sort of like keep track that's the That's the problem, and part of the
2: problem is you're you're inclined to not allow people like Mike towis. To put his graduate students and researchers on the ground to survey for ocelots. Because it's going to lead it, to trouble. Yeah. You know, we think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 ocelots in Texas. There could be more. It's, it's an unknown. So that's an extrapolation, right? We don't know how many there are. We don't know exactly where they are. We've got some known populations. One known population is on... The East Foundation's El Sals Ranch. So we've got the the largest population known, and we're not afraid of the Endangered Species Act or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, perhaps foolishly, but nevertheless, we're not afraid. We're you know we're going to continue to to work the research management recovery system, and we feel like it's a stewardship responsibility as do other ranchers, to recover that species. There's, for, for whatever reason, and, and and it can be a religious reason, it can be a reason that, look, we don't want this to go out on my watch, whatever that is, but, but you've got to take into account, in that, at least in that part of the state, in the state that has 142 million acres of private lands, those private landowners... By and large, the best conservationists there are. I mean, they care about that land. They care. They've got a stake in it, and they've got a stake in the future reputation for themselves as ranchers and caretakers of that of that ground. That's the scenario we're finding with ocelots. Is we just simply are trying to figure out how to get rid of the disincentives and be able to assure private landowners in and around that ocelot population that they can allow monitoring, research, and then proactive measures for, say, translocation. Uh, We're doing things like collecting semen from male ocelots so that we can perhaps impregnate zoo ocelots and have offspring that we might be able to either from a wild population or from, or from that crossbred zoo population, create another translocated population elsewhere so that we don't have to worry about that next hurricane that comes through turning into a Category 4. Yeah, I mean, the clock is ticking on that type of catastrophe when you get a population confined to that small of a geographic area and they're that small. If
0: you, to, if you had to characterize... The, um, If you had to characterize the sort of anti-Fed sentiment around, let's say someone is, they know, their family knows they have ocelots on their property. um, They don't want to be rolled up into any kind of activities with the scientific community at a federal level for fear that someone's going to come in and go like, oh my gosh, you do have ocelots. I'm shutting this place down because you're not going to be allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Um, maybe you're not going to be able to do the very things that uh, made it that it was good ocelot habitat anyways, like mm-hmm. sort of having economic viability on your property, which makes it that you don't need it to de- de- develop it, for instance. exactly. But do you find that like the average sentiment that's like the anti-fed sentiment is educated and precise, meaning they're like, oh, I would love to tell them. But if I tell them, then this could happen to me and it would look like this. Or is it just generally, I hate the feds? I think
2: it's across the board, obviously, because, I mean, you got, I mean, in our, our state, we've got 350,000 decision makers, 350,000 landowners. So it's going to be across the board there. So, and, and there's experiences that they've seen with other species. So you take something like the golden cheek warbler. That may have been used in some cases to halt development Mm -hmm. in and around the Austin area. You take something like the Dunes sagebrush lizard that in some cases was used to halt oil and gas development in the Permian Basin.
0: Like was used opportunistically. Sure. Yeah. Like someone wanted a thing to happen and that was the way to make it. Or something wanted something to not happen and that... Bird or that lizard was a way to make it not happen yeah. that gave you legal, well, legal it gave you legal grounds to get your way now yeah, we've got the flip side of the coin with the Ocelot real
2: interestingly there's there's organizations that use it as a mascot for fundraising that that then don't do much for the ocelot mm. um, we've got uh, I think it's a this is a good thing Our Texas Department of Transportation uh, you can get an ocelot license plate. Okay. There's more ocelot license plates in Texas than there are ocelots in Texas, and you can see. You, in fact, you can see more driving between San Antonio and Austin. You can see more ocelot license plates than there are ocelots in deep South Texas. So people love them. Yep. You'll see ranchers with ocelot license plates, so you know ranchers love them. They want to figure out how to recover ocelots without putting large ownerships that are depend on economic viability at at stake. And so they need assurances. And so I and I think it's I think it boils down to, you know, just raw trust and economics. And it's not just the and, and it's not that there's bad people at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there's good people. Um, they're, they're caught managing an act that in some cases is antiquated and there's sophisticated organizations that have figured out how to sue them. And they yeah. know in every conversation you'll have with the fish and wildlife service over anything, it'll all come down to, you know, okay, what happens when, you know, group X, group Y, or group Z, uh, sues us because we've worked out a deal with you as a private landowner. So, okay, here's how we're going to, here's how we're going to make sure that we're, uh, Fully solid on our conservation measures. Uh, we're legal on maintaining confidentiality. All of these hoops that you've got to jump through. And for some landowners that just look, I, I'm suspicious when I have to apply for permits, when you're telling me you have enforcement authority over me, and those types of things. So. When, I
3: think in the spirit of uh, antiquated and sophisticated, uh, we should probably uh, take a uh quick crack at uh defining uh vigilante again. <laughs> I think uh <laughs> I think that was uh if I may a slightly uh romanticized Texan definition of vigilante. Okay. Uh where uh oftentimes and especially if we look back through history at our vigilante groups uh, some would characterize the Texas Rangers as one of them. That they aren't just folks stepping in and taking care of things that aren't getting done. Uh, like it's implied that it's like justice being done, but oftentimes that's um, some self-serving justice as well, right? So yeah, if you
0: top it with the word conservation, then you're sort of qualifying it from vigilante. Uh, assholeism.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> well,
0: that's a fair. That's
3: a fair comment.
0: Because <laughs> if uh, I said okay, vigilante I'm... charity, right? Vigilante charity, you'd be like, I don't know what it is, but it sounds like a good thing.
3: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like somebody <laughs> throwing money out the window. <laughs> that's
0: great. So I was letting it ride because it's vigilante. <laughs> conservation not vigilante destruction
2: take a push at it because i use that one all the time so i'd like no
3: no i i I think just uh revisiting that point uh is all that was needed so uh the computer is spoken
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh esa reform like endangered species act reform is one of those things i'm like you hear it all the time and i'm leery about it because I support it, but I probably don't support it in the way that other people support it. It's yeah. one of those things that's become to mean – it's become it's – like, it's happened to the word conservation. Like, I could say, oh, I'm pro-conservation. You know, like, different politicians say I'm pro-conservation. You're like, w- w- what exactly do you mean? And you realize that they're talking about something that you're not talking about. Right. And a lot of people that talk about Endangered Species Act reform – a significant amount are saying what I mean by that is I would like the damn thing to go away And a significant amount are saying, I mean that it could be more effective if we change it and make it more flexible to account for like what you're talking about um, in the situation of the ocelot. So for me to now say, if someone asks like, do you support endangered species act reform? I'd have to say, um, I'll have to ask you a series of questions before I answer because I don't know what you're getting at. Yeah, I
2: agree, I agree with you. I'm uh, when I say that, and, and I and I don't say reform often. I just say changes to the Endangered Species Act or how it's administered. And I don't care which. Uh, I'm looking for better performance on private lands. Mm-hmm. And wh- why that? What's the, what's the big deal there? When you look at more than one third of endangered species that are currently listed entirely depend on private lands and somewhere in in the neighborhood of 75 percent have a large portion of their range across private lands. So if we've got an Endangered Species Act that's not performing as well as it could perform on private lands, then maybe it needs some reform. But I get it about being worried about cracking the act open. You know, if we're driving that 1972 galaxy 500 you know we crack it open we want to reupholster the seats and put a new more efficient engine in it so it's not getting three miles to the gallon somebody else might want to put some whole bunch of other stuff in there yeah that you know and oftentimes you'll hear people just lay out you know the the one liner well the act needs more teeth well that's one of those things that means a different Thing to different people. you yeah. know. Oftentimes when someone says that, they basically mean we want the Fish and Wildlife Service to be more like policemen and enforcement yeah. officers rather than doing whatever it takes by any means possible to result in the recovery of endangered species across all lands, whether it's
0: public lands or private lands. I think it would be phenomenal if we could find ways to better if we could find ways to better work with private landowners on ESA issues in a way that still allowed the ultimate goal to move forward. But I do think that the way we do it now and the way that we handle private interests leads to a thing where it's kind of like the spotted owl syndrome, where a spotted owl after the whole debacle with logging and the spotted owl, a spotted owl didn't, mean that word didn't mean a bird anymore right like when you hear the word spotted owl you don't think like oh it's a little owl that lives in old girl forest you think like spotted owl is federal overreach right because there are things that we do that really there are things that we do in the service of prolonging or, or saving species that makes them have like this entirely negative connotation in people's heads who have to suffer with it most and i think in, in around here in this neck of the woods. The most egregious examples are what's been done to people around ESA listing for wolves and ESA listings for grizzlies, which they've been recovered by definition for decades. Yet you continue to make it hard on private landowners to go about their business because we like sure move the move the, move the poles, needle, yeah, move the goalposts all along, and then that creates this sort of like this anti-wolf sentiment this anti-grizzly sentiment that I don't think it's necessary to create the anti-wolf, anti-grizzly sentiment. Like, I don't think that you have to make that in order to save those things. There has to be a way to re- like reduce the friction and still hit the ultimate outcome. And it would probably come around from some
2: form of reform. Sure. and And I know what you're talking about. I was a, I was a wildlife biologist for a timber company in the Pacific Northwest in the early 1990s. And so I was hated from both sides, right? Because I was inside the timber company, so I was hated by our loggers. But then you were a biologist. Yeah, I was a biologist, so I was hated by the, you know, the others. But learn, learn, to, learn to work, put habitat conservation plans together so that we could live with the spotted out. There were huge financial reasons to do that. And so in the the Pacific Northwest, around spotted owls, marble muralettes, Pacific salmon, there's huge financial interests at being able to put together some type of collaborative deal, a habitat conservation plan that worked for private lands and worked for endangered species. We don't necessarily have that with all species in all places. You know, when you've got a small salamander that shuts down... uh, uh, what you think is a housing development that ought to, ought to go forward, you're likely to just shake your fist if you're the housing developer at that salamander, figure out how you can hide the fact that it's there. You know, we don't want it on our property. It 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 in and of itself becomes the enemy, right? We've got to figure out how to remove the disincentives. And this, and this is the canned comment, Right. Remove the disincentives and create incentives. That's easy to say. It's hard to do. It's a really hard thing to do, to create those out-of-the-box incentives that always work with private landowners. But it is doable.
5: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at Errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley, and you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too, return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With errands, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Errands fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest errands store or visit errands.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigational app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use a fully functional GPS when you're out of service. We all know that's usually where the best part starts. It's intuitive to use and lets you find open trails anywhere you want to explore with just a tap on the map. Access detailed trail information like difficulty rating, duration, clearance level, open and close date, trail photos, and more. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. You just download it ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. What's the thing that landowners are primarily worried about if people know they have ocelots? Is it that they're worried about being able to drill? like oil extraction like what's the thing that they're mostly worried about losing they're mostly
2: worried about losing their ability to make spot decisions on land use so for example uh, the fence line situation I was telling you about i you know, i've i've been worried on our own lands about road clearing and uh, habitat that we might lose when we need to come in and clear an area so that we can increase increase the the forage production capacity for the land those types of decisions but ranchers cr- creating need creating pasture be able to make, for cattle or, exactly yeah. exactly we need to make sure that you, you know we're not we're in a situation where we've got on staff scientists biologists and managers that know and understand that so we can craft a solution we've got our friend right next door with mike Tuas, who's the you know preeminent ocelot ecologist but not every landowner feels that comfortable. Mm-hmm. And they tend, if you're a large ranch, you might have a family that you're responsible to and a board of directors that you're responsible to. And you've got a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that you don't lose your ability to manage that land. You don't lose your ability to graze a 10,000-acre pasture, let's say, Uh We've got to figure out how to make sure that people don't lose that, they gain the incentive or or remove the disincentive for at least raising their hand and saying, you know, I've got ocelots, here they are, working with, you know, Caesar Clayberg group over here. But the first way to do that is to make sure that there's some confidentiality. So as they're stepping into the game, so to speak, they're They can do it with some safety. They can do it with a...
0: Is it legal... I guess it's got to be. Is it legal for someone to know that they have something, right? Okay, let's say there's an endangered species, right? right. And you got a ranch and you know it's on there. It's not like illegal for you to keep that secret. Nothing wrong with keeping it secret
2: and managing for it and increasing their numbers.
0: But how, are, how many of these ranchers all right how many of these ranchers are actually let's say you know they're there yeah I, I just want to poke at the motives here you know they're there you enjoy them being there if you could shake a magic wand and have there be more you would do it and there'd be more right you don't want to have anybody come in and tell you you can't do x y and z to keep your place solvent and viable to keep your property like you know in your family Functioning right. cattle ranch, whatever you got. Um, what are they actually like? What are they doing in exchange? Like, what are they proposing that they would do to help ocelots if they could somehow let the cat out of the bag? That was a good pun. Yeah. That was good. Like, what are they going to, what would they do to make more of them? Or like, what would they do to contribute rather than just that they're just looking for a way to not be interfered with? Right. Like what gift are they giving to the people or what gift are they giving to the cat? So
2: I'm going to pitch some of that to to Mike, but just to to comment straight out, they can be an example to other landowners where we might translocate a population so that those landowners would agree. Oh, I hadn't thought about the translocation. You know, we've got to have another population. And if those those landowners look over there and go, you know what, look what's happening to those guys. Like hell am I going to let you let the cat loose here? I got you. So that's the ask. That is one. There are
0: some things that you can do. An ask would be, man, your place is has none, could have some. Why don't you get on board? He's like hell oh. that. The minute they let him go here, I'm screwed. Right. And yeah, plus, plus, we him. need to know from those landowners.
2: Just, I mean, there's some real conservation benefit just knowing exactly how many ocelots there are, where they are. Uh, there's some there's some long term habitat development that can be that can be done, and ranchers know better than anybody how to develop habitat, and so that uh, I don't know Mike any.
1: Yeah, yeah. Frankie Teria uh, he he uh, established uh, the, one of the first conservation easements in, in 1987 88, where he set aside two different tracks. each of them was only about 200 acres each of the the best ocelot habitat that is left in Texas and created a, a a conservation easement with Fish and Wildlife Service. We've had eleven different territorial ocelots at the same time on these very small core habitats. And we consider that to be a, a, a source population, a source habitat, which I I really believe that that kind of serves like the heartbeat for that population in the ranch country. We've had several instances I think uh, at least eight different oslots that moved from those very small patches onto to uh, the east ranch uh, there. So it's a very source. So so that and and over the years he added two more conservation easements with the Nature Conservancy in 2007 and 2009, and just about four or five years ago put the the remaining 10,000 acres into some kind of an an agreement, uh, mostly rangeland, but some kind of agreement to protect the ocelot into the future. So over time, although it's mostly grass and very little habitat in the rest of that ranch, it will eventually provide for ocelots. And that little pocket of habitat. Well, and that rest of the 10,000 acres, that's rangeland. When that starts to grow back, we have more, more carbon in the atmosphere, and that's great for brush. Ultimately, the carbon in the atmosphere will help the brush. Hold on, explain that. Well, uh, Neil, Neil, you're more of a range range. Oh, you threw that
2: one out there. Now we're now we're going to rabbit trail. <laughs> oh on no, this. Yeah. I won't make you do it for long. But uh, you mean like carbon in the atmosphere decreases grassland and increases brush, increases the opportunity for brush, uh, for brush growth. Yeah, so it and, leads to grassland loss.
0: Right.
5: Huh.
0: Right. And so in what capacity? Because the pre- precipitation changes, or no,
2: it's actually the change. Now I'm not an expert on this. The biochemical changes that that result in the better competitive ability for woody species versus grass to actually capture the resources on a site.
1: The, no kidding.
2: Yeah.
0: Water. So when you hear about like juniper nutrients. encroachment and stuff, that could there, there's some factor there that could be linked to like more carbon or less carbon in the atmosphere that could lead to juniper encroachment. Yeah on Neil, land. did you sure.
1: throw out that carbon thing? You shouldn't have thrown that carbon that was
0: nah, we, don't, we, don't, that we right? don't need to hang on it. I just really <laughs> I never heard that man. That's interesting. <laughs>
4: What, uh, what's I got
0: to
1: oh, go slip one in.
4: What's still, I'm, I'm confused at why, what's preventing if we have these core populations and you know that they are breeding, right? And we're not trapping them and shooting them legally as much as we were 100 years ago. And so how come we just don't have like a, just a general increase in
1: population and dispersal? Excellent question. Excellent question. The, a couple of things. One is, is the ocelot is a habitat specialist. It, it, it seeks a thinner, it, it seeks the densest brush that you could find 95 percent horizontal cover is is ideal for that can you explain that uh, horizontal the shrub layer the shrub layer is 15 feet or shorter that's where the shrub layer occurs and also and throughout the range we use different vegetation communities but a common factor is extremely dense cover near the ground where the oslot operates. But what's the percentage mean? Oh, horizontal okay. if, coverage. if you if you did a measuring uh, line or a uh, transect over, over the brush, it's called line intercept, 95% or more of that would be solid brush. It'd be just a, a wall of brush. And so they're very selective on that. And and twice, once in the 80s and the 90s, we flew transects over the lower 13 counties in Texas.
0: I'm, I'm so confused. Uh, okay. Picture like a very nice lawn. Okay.
1: Uh-huh. That would be
0: 0%. Well, no, no. That was the, sure. And picture you're an ant. Going okay. through a very thick lawn. Okay. Would that ant say this is 100% brush coverage
1: uh, uh, as he finagles his way through a uh, thick grass? It depends on your grass, I guess. You know, if you have a solid stand of grass, yeah. If it's spotty, maybe not. But okay, so if you
0: measure, that's what I'm saying, like if you measure 100 centimeters, so I take a a, a thing that has 100 centimeters and I a, a stick, and I hold that stick up, 9.5 of those centimeter marks are going to have a piece of vegetation. There are, it.
1: there are a few different ways to measure, but the one I have always liked, was it's called line intercept. You you do a a, a tape measure for, say, 10 feet. Okay. And then you, you identify what's called the drip line of each shrub, individual shrub, where the, the foliage canopy, and then you, you consider that continuous. No, I got you. And so All if right. you measure it over that, then that, that's what I got mean. you. Because I was saying, that's a thick-ass brush at 95. Well, yeah. And, and those, what's interesting is those two small tracks that remain— is what's left of the, they called it the El Hardin. Back in the early 1900s, before the Rio Grande Valley was cleared, there was a lot of, of the El Hardin, the garden Spanish, just solid brush. And that was one of the last vestiges of of the core population of ocelots. What's kind of ironic is prior to this, the Spanish uh, explorations that occurred in the 1600s, there are a lot of accounts of South Texas being a grassland or primarily a grassland. So that probably wasn't really good ocelot habitat, except along the rivers where you had the really dense brush. Over time, uh, because of the, the stopping the fire and overgrazing, you've had more encroachment of brush over time, and that's benefited the ocelots. so we've we've actually helped the ocelot in some places in some ways. And there's yeah. some,
2: some places like the Ocelot population on the Euturtius. So there's a There's a ranch there called the Punta del Monte, and that's just the point of brush. The, the point of the woodland. That, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that that was so, the old Spanish name. So
4: even as thick as we've seen it on the multiple South Texas ranches that we've gotten to hunt on, it's still not thick enough.
1: Probably not. Because a rancher, if he has a ride or horse through that, says it's thick. But it's a very special kind of thick. And we've done surveys and we found that less than 1%, really less than one-half of 1% of South Texas has that very special cover type. Less than one half of one wow. percent, and that's why they're. And, right. and that's what presents.
4: They mean they call it the brush country. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, they wow.
0: It used There's to be like the wild a, horse it's like an asterisk. <laughs> They need to have an asterisk after. <laughs> <laughs> kinda, yeah. <laughs> the the brushy, kind of brushy country. Yeah, so that's what that like answers his question, like why okay. are they not? If we're not just out shooting them willy nilly and trapping them,
1: well, that's part of it. But, they don't but have another anywhere to go. important part is they're very poor dispersers. Because that spotting pattern that they have, they stick out like a sore thumb in the open. So they, they need that dense brush to move from one area to, to the other. Those two populations are separated by less than 30 miles. And over 35 years, we've never documented one ocelot moving to the other.
0: That's it. Even that, just, that's one of the that's questions I wanted to ask is, what's the when you're throwing a
1: collar on one of them,
0: what's the farthest you've ever seen one of them go wearing a collar? 26
1: miles. Uh, and that went from the ranch population down to what we call the port of Harlingen. Typically, it's about ten miles, and that usually ends unsuccessfully being killed on the road. What happened to him? Well, well, the, he was killed on the road too. That that longest one, <laughs> the Porter. He was killed. That's how we find him. They killed on the road. So this ideal of of the disconnection or so connect- the, on the one Mexico, you had that went
0: the farthest. Yeah, he's still Went Farther than they normally fall. It went farther than they normally make it, but succumbed to the same thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, and the problem is they go into the highly developed. Rio Grande Valley, and there's a tense road network there. So it's just a gauntlet. Once they leave the population, they're going through a gauntlet. That often is demise, you know, the road.
0: Do they head – when you got a collar on
1: one, do they head in a direction that makes sense? You know, I've always thought about that. The, the outside doesn't have a map.
0: Yeah, yeah. He has no yeah, clue we where don't, he's going. Yeah, we don't. we don't really understand this stuff, though, because – like, you look at, I don't know, all kinds of stuff, man, like humpback whales, bowhead whales, sea, the, these various sea turtle species that do insane stuff. My brother had a bunch of pigeons that were born in his yard. One day he drove the pigeons an hour and a half away and they beat him home. Yeah.
1: well we They, use they homing never pigeons. left his yard. We use homing pigeons. <laughs> so, so I don't know explain. that he, that he had that it other. in his head. The head in the, well, those you, examples are different. I, I, a lot of those birds may use magnetic yeah. fields or the stars or something. Not cats. They, but my only, my only point being... Yeah.
0: There could be some thing we don't yet understand that sure. when a cat boogies, he boogies in a way that at least kind of makes sense. Sure.
1: Yeah, I, I'm always I, we by no means know everything, and I, I always, am, as a scientist, you have to be open that you don't know everything. And but I, but I, I I think about it a lot, and 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 the ocelot's world is in the dark, and it can only see two feet. Above the ground, and its its immediate world is surrounded by brush. It's in a very enclosed world, so when it it boogies somewhere, you know it. it you kind of wonder what kind of cues it's 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 homing into some natural drainages. I think maybe a, a a rough factor, uh, and or maybe at a distance they can't see that far in the distance because of those factors. It's really un- and so they don't have a map, and they usually get in trouble.
0: One more, I guess, same question, different way. Okay. Do the ones that take off take off in the same direction or is it willy nilly?
1: I think there may be some generality for that. And again, it probably is related to the drainages, whatever cues that they see And the I don't I don't if there's a big open grass stand, most of them won't go that way. But if there's some cover, some level of cover even if it's fifty percent brush or something else, they'd prefer that over agricultural field. Got you. So there may be some roughness, but it's uh I think for for a lot of the cats, it's, a, it's a, almost a random thing.
0: I'll tell you why I ask. Uh, I had one time in my mom's storage shed. I had ten live snapping turtles in there. She left the door open, and um, they all went the right direction. And I later thought it has to be downhill. The pit, the, yeah, it <laughs> has it to downhill? be the pitch. Yeah, they yeah. All went downhill. I, I
1: would, I would guess that. You know, for a turtle, I was like, they had to have gotten the yard because I followed slope. a bunch
0: up and down the beach, they were all going, it had to be that they just following the contour.
1: Sandwich, like, I guess
0: that one. Yeah, like <laughs> why like, Why would a snap turtle was like, I need to get to the water. I'm not going to go uphill.
1: Yeah, it, it, I bet there are some cues like that, that different taxons, you know, respond different ways. Yeah, That's interesting. Yeah. It's like anytime
0: stuff. I've headed to the water, it's always been downhill.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, but so if you're playing Crashes in the Mountains, you follow the creeks down, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, you, when we were laying out some, when you were working with Corinne to put down some, some things that we wanted to discuss, you had three motivations that drive ocelots. And then and parenthetically, it says, and most small cats, is uh sex, hunger, and fear. Yeah, uh,
1: I, I've learned that from my, my, my two outdoor cats that are pretty walled. And I, I just sit around and watch them. And, and you better they, watch
0: out, because Cal will hunt them down and kill them. Cal's on an anti-cat crusade.
1: Not well, he is. Yeah. Oh, Feral yeah. cats. Well, no, I, I appreciate him more than most of them. He's think. a soft man with a dog, and okay. a hard man with a cat. Yeah, well, I, I like dogs. <laughs> I like dogs more, Cal. I, I like dogs more than cats, but I I, I keep a few around for behavioral observations.
3: Hey, any animal it helps you out tremendously. There, there's so many cues that help hunters and it, it, well worth your time to have an animal in your life. And, and being anti-cat isn't entirely correct. I, I am shocked at uh, the duality of uh, people's morals when it comes to uh, domestic cat ownership.
0: Oh, yeah, that you don't like the guy that haunts two pheasants a year, but meanwhile your cat, uh, <laughs> that, that that feral... And free wandering house cats kill more birds than there are Americans every year.
3: Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I did on this subject. Uh, like, what? What is the? Is there overlap between a domestic cat population and, and is there a concern for uh, disease transmission? That tox- oh. toxoplasmosis, I believe, is what it is.
1: Yeah. Good question. Yeah. There, there's right near the El South Ranch. Is a small community of a hundred people called Port Mansfield, and there've been some studies that have shown feline leukemia or some disease. Hundred that... people, two
3: thousand cats. Go ahead.
1: Well, you, you, you probably, <laughs> yeah. And 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 what I worry about them is the bobcats probably coming into town or the edge of town, which they frequently do, getting that disease to bobcat and then into the ocelot population only about four or five miles away. So, and and that's one thing we worry about. Mange is another thing. Coyotes will get mange. Usually, a different kind of mange. Uh, uh, cats will get to mange and they get sarcoptic mange. But we, we worry about house cats. But usually, cats won't live too long. Coyotes will kill them. Uh, uh, great horned owls will kill them I, I, in the wild. Although, surprisingly, some places you can find some house cats, but most of the time, they won't live too long in the wild.
0: How do they arrange themselves? Like when you have a little population, you have to imagine that they're structured somehow, right? I mean, they're interacting with each other.
1: You're talking about all sorts of cats? house cats, okay? Yeah, uh, ocelots. Yeah, it's 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 kind of the typical system, social organization. See for the 33 species of small cats. Most people don't realize that, but I'm just amazed. There are 33 species of small cats, and many of them show the same system where where the strategy of the female is to breed and find a home range that's big enough that will support her young, raising her young over a, a year or two, w- even with variations of drought and wet periods. Uh, but the male's strategy is to try to—and so the female wants to make sure her young survive to breeding age. And um, the male's strategy is, is, is not does not take part of, of caretaking for the young, but it wants to breed with as many females as it can. So that male is monitoring the territory of one female, two females, or sometimes three, and that means it spends a lot of its time traveling and checking to find out when the female is in estrus, or reproductively active and if it wants to head, overlap two home ranges two females, it's moving a lot, getting hit by cars well yeah if if there' are roads in between there there will be and and the but on the the ranches where there aren't roads they're they're moving a lot and um and they try so they so they're they're optimizing their ability to spread the genes that way. The female once uh, she knows that the 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 males aren't going to help with with raising the young any. So it's really interesting strategy. And and um, and the males I think for many small cats will they'll monitor the females and probably they'll fight with other males and they definitely defend the territories. We've had three instances of one male killing another male. Hmm. All cats will kill other cats. Different species, same species, um, and the bigger cats kill the smaller cats pretty easy. Uh, but um, I, I've got a photo of this one ocelot and a jaguar in Mexico, and you can tell as it's at a watering hole, and uh, they're they're the jaguar's about to kill that ocelot. So, so cats. Oh, really?
0: And you caught him in a photo at that well, moment.
1: Well, yeah, another person in Mexico. It's it's, it's one photo, uh, and they're both responding to the flash of the camera. But that ocelot, that first, there are two photos. And that first photo, the all the hair standing out on the tail of that ocelot, and its one hind leg is already looks unusual, like it's already broken. I think they already had a bite before oh, that. Uh, and the, the three seconds later, the next camera, they're both looking back intensely at each other. And I bet if it had another three seconds, that ocelot would be dead. Yeah. So, so, uh, so that's a, a problem. But they they display a lot, and they they try not to fight. They they. Scent mark their home ranges and territories. They don't want to fight because if you break a canine or you lose one eye, your chances of surviving much longer is, is not good. If you had to uh crystal ball it, right, how long have you been messing
0: with ocelots for? 38 years. Okay. So what year will it be in 38 years? It'll be 2058? No. I the
1: hell? I'm a wildlife scientist. I didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah, take yeah, math. You did
0: the math right. Yeah.
1: What, what, what year is it? Nail it. 2058. 2058. 2058. In 2058, uh, our Oslos is gone. And Texas is still around. You think so? so? Yes. Yeah. 2058. Yeah. Uh, yes, I do. Because you have the East Foundation, who's going to work with some other landowners and do what it takes to maintain those into the future. I'm convinced. And hopefully well, get the, the translocation. All I ever do anymore things.
0: is read about bad stuff, man. I'm, I'm glad to hear this.
1: Well, you know, I, I probably changed my attitude five or ten years. I spent the first thirty years pretty pessimistic and giving presentations that people come up at the end and say, "I wish you weren't so pessimistic." <laughs> and be a little more. No, are, you, are you just being strategic <laughs> by being optimistic? No, I really believe that. Really, you're not. Yeah. Just,
0: you're not just trying to play the long game a little bit with me. No, no, I really, I really believe that.
1: I think it's I'm a not, dumb
2: and dumber approach. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a chance that Ocelots are going
0: to make it. and just
2: like Well, me, if
1: we do the things we need to do, <laughs> and I think we will.
0: Really? Yeah. Tell people, uh, give people a little rundown of what they can do to find out more about Ocelots and more about the work to save Ocelots, you know, how people might be involved
1: yeah, well, one is check out our website, the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute, and then the East Foundation. I'm sure that you can get some information from both of those.
2: Yeah, east, eastfoundation.net. Also, we've got a, a feature film coming out that you've seen produced mm-hmm. by by uh, Ben Masters and Finn Fur and Feather. And Cesar and and East Foundation collaborated on that along with Fish and Wildlife Service. It's a thirty-minute feature on the plight of ocelots in South Texas. Yeah, that's part of a bigger uh, set of productions that um, that Texan by nature, a nonprofit that was formed by Laura Bush, is helping sponsor through Fin Fur and Feather Films. Yeah, he did the. the, That's the dude that did the border and the wall.
0: Yeah, he did that, yeah. uh,
2: and they did that Wild Horse film. Un-
4: yeah. Unbranded. Yeah. Unbranded. Unbranded. Like, yeah. Ben nope.
2: Masters. In fact, he spends some time here in Bozeman every year. But uh, that is coming out, and that will be out in December. And uh, that's a that's a good, just basic synopsis of the issue from both a biological perspective. Well, you've seen it from yeah. both a yeah. biological perspective, and, and it lays out the – Two sides of the issue in a, a little bit of an abbreviated form, but it does.
1: Yeah, he got some incredible footage for that as well. And real quick, I want to mention Karen Hickson also was one of the founders of uh, funders of that that film. But he got incredible five hours worth of film on the ocelots. A lot of it based on this one mother and her two young, and 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 the the two young are only seen together in the very first image. The male dies shortly thereafter, and but from there on, dies what? I, I total guess, but I could see easily see a dozen things it's stumbling into a, a big five foot rattlesnake on that ranch. Okay, could he easily do it? A coyote stumble a bobcat, there are a variety of things that could do it. And and uh, um, but and and he, I think he has a, a, a like a, a one segment of, of of also drinking water for six minutes. Uh, he has another one of it regurgitating. It takes like two minutes for the Saussela to regurgitate. Huh. It's a... Uh, Fascinating um, film. <laughs> yeah. It's a little quirky, and, and it's really good. It's a it's excellent uh, piece. And, and, uh, and, and throughout that film, you see the mother training her young. It's constantly calling it, uh, getting it to follow, and making small vocalizations. It's nursing it while coyotes are howling off in the distance. You know, it's almost like a calming effect on that on that kitten. Nursing, and they're both sitting there calming and, and calming behavior. and it's leading it from one cover patch to another cover. So the, the sex, hunger, and fear, I think, are, are pure. And I get that from my, my backyard cats. You know, uh, uh, the males from the neighboring houses come in for the sex. Uh, they're constantly hunting the birds. Uh, and then the fear is if I just make a noise, they're running for cover. So, so you and and that's uh, that's throughout the the cat king the small cats at least we yeah.
2: drop something hopeful on you. So we've we've worked hard with the Fish and Wildlife Service over the last four or five years just to basically help them help them understand the rancher side of the situation. And we have some uh, some strong and influential people within the Fish and Wildlife Service that have got it. They've got it figured out, and they're they are working on the inside to try to figure out. How we can do this, separate and aside from any reforming the Endangered no. Species Act or anything like that. It's just what can we do with what we have and how can we make this work? And we've got some really dedicated people in there that sh- sh- share the same objectives that, that we share, understand that we are serious about it. We sink more uh, funding into research on that species than anyone else, and we're there for the long run. And this is not just a flash in the pan, and at least for
0: me, uh, I don't want that cat blinking out on my watch. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wish you best luck in that move because I think if someone's out there and and they would be willing to have some and willing to take some steps but don't want to get steamrolled, I'd sure hope that there's a it sure seems to me they'd we would uh, collectively find a path forward for that individual man. I mean, you know. And, and and not have a and not have a, a a difficult to navigate bureaucratic bureaucratic entanglement laid out in front of them.
2: It's supposed to be part of how the North American model works too. I mean it really does come back and apply to look, this is how we are supposed to handle our our public trust. Yeah. that we've that we have in this country. It's supposed to work that way. We've got a lot of things working that way that are run through the state game and fish agencies. Of course, they have commissions where they can turn on a dime. Many of them do. Fish and Wildlife Service, the responsibilities that they have over endangered species, a little bit different. But we've got to make it work within that public trust doctrine of of the North American model. We've got to figure it out.
0: Cal, you got any uh, final wrap-ups? Cal's going to go vigilante on them cats.
3: Uh, uh, (laughs) wildlife management is hard (laughs) you know i mean it's i'm sure there are a lot of folks trying to manage species on the public land side of the fence that are staring into the private land saying how easy it would be if only and i think one of the you know i mean as far as like land specifically managed for wildlife in the u.s that is privately held i think you're still a larger amount of land in privately held acres than all the national parks in the lower 48 combined.
0: Um, I mean land owned one, for wildlife
3: owned. Yeah. With the stated purpose of, of yep. wildlife. Um, most of that, most of that's for hunting. Right. And, uh, you know, the thing that those pieces of land, uh, miss that are on the public land side of things in a lot of cases, not all cases is, um, the public has a voice like as, as a nation sometimes in how invested we're going to be in a species and that kind of lacks on um, the ocelot side of things, right? It's like, Oh, that's a good You're going to be doing advocacy work on ocelots every, every day. But-
0: yeah. I know. And you're like, yeah. And I'll, and, and with the public perspective is, and I'll never see the damn thing. Cause I can't go there.
1: Cal yeah. Cal made me think of something that I think that's fundamental is that these vast ranches and even small ranches, they'll generate often more income from their hunting operation of deer and quail than they do from the cattle operation. So they have incentives to hire a lot of our students, undergraduate and graduates, come and work on their ranches of biologists to keep the habitat there. And that fundamental incentive is also providing indirectly Habitat for ocelots, so the yeah. the hunting and 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 that uh, that the, that's there is really indirectly also benefiting in ocelots.
3: Yeah, good quail habitat, and if you're a renella type of fellow, it's good cottontail habitat is good ocelot habitat from the sounds of it.
0: All right, guys, thank you for coming. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. Yeah, and tell people
2: one one more time how to how to find you. Uh, East Foundation at eastfoundation.net. You guys are based out of based out of San Antonio, Texas, but spend our time driving throughout South Texas.
1: And then Caesar Kleberg Wildlife Research Institute, and it's in, based in Kingsville, Texas, Texas A and M University, Kingsville. All right, thank you very much, guys. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
4: Hey, you
0: ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So, check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what. I'm talking about approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet. Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4 slash meat eater.